Hello, everyone. Welcome to For the Record, the 70s. This is the place where we take a deep dive into the music, politics, and culture of the 70s. This is Amy, your host for this one-woman, one-mic show. Today, we take a look at the Black Power Movement and how it was reflected in music, especially in the early 70s. What do you remember about your studies about the civil rights movement in school, especially in high school? If you remember middle school, congratulations. I am confident that Martin Luther King Jr. came up, and you most likely spent some time with his I Have a Dream speech, which he gave in 1963. You may have also discussed the concept of nonviolent civil disobedience, which was Dr. King's strategy for fighting for the civil rights of African Americans. That is being present in places where you are not wanted and maybe you are not even legally permitted to be, say, a lunch counter at a Woolworths. And if you provoke violence, which you very well may do, you do not fight back. In my high school history classes, the ones that I teach, not the ones that I was in, which I do not remember, I show a film clip from the 1980s documentary series Eyes on the Prize, which has the best film footage of the civil rights movement that you will see anywhere. I want you to listen to what a white woman in Nashville has to say about the sit-ins that are occurring in her city in 1960. I think that people who strive to gain social acceptance through their, they, although they're called nonviolent or passive resistance, they're the most violent. Uh, I also think that... Uh, uh, it is uh, in violation to my civil rights if uh, someone can say, "You must serve me." If you own, if a man, if a man owns an eating establishment, uh, if he can't choose whom he pleases to serve or not to serve, that can affect me and you and anyone else. Now that always gets my students very worked up because of what she says about her civil rights being violated, which is, of course, her fear at losing her privileged status as a white person. But did you also hear her say that King's strategy was not nonviolent at all? No question that King's strategy provoked violence and exposed the lengths to which white people would go to protect their privileged place in society. While sitting in a jail cell in Birmingham, Alabama in 1963, King wrote a very lengthy response to his critics, the white clergymen who had questioned why he was there, and why he couldn't just negotiate instead of protest. He wrote, Nonviolent direct action seeks to create such a crisis and foster such a tension that a community which has constantly refused to negotiate is forced to confront the issue. It seeks so to dramatize the issue that it can no longer be ignored. So now I'm going to paraphrase Dr. King. He said, I'm here in Birmingham to make you or hopefully make you face up to the racism that African-Americans in your city face. And he also said, and again, I'm paraphrasing, I wish you were as opposed to racism as you are to the protests against it. Now, when you think back to your studies about the civil rights movement, did you learn about Stokely Carmichael? because he was just about anywhere that Dr. King was between 1960 and 1965. Stokely Carmichael, who later claimed the name Kwame Ture, was there. 
He also believed for a while in nonviolent civil disobedience. But Carmichael and King were different. Carmichael was not a Southerner. King was. He was born in Atlanta. He was about 12 years older than Carmichael. Carmichael was born in Trinidad. He was a Harvard-educated Northerner, a New Yorker, but he never really seemed to be ill at ease talking to Southerners. He had all of the qualities that you would want in an organizer. He was charming. He was intelligent. He was persuasive. He was a leader of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, SNCC, which worked with King's organization, the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, the SCLC, to advocate for civil rights for African Americans. They had that in common, but something's going to change. And Stokely Carmichael is going to change his point of view on nonviolent disobedience, and he's going to say this later. Um, I guess we could start with 1956 for our generation. This was the beginning of the rise of Dr. Martin Luther King. Dr. King decided that in Montgomery, Alabama, black people had to pay the same prices on the buses as did white people, but we had to sit in the back. And we could only sit in the back if every available seat was taken by a white person. If a white person was standing, a black person could not sit. So Dr. King and his associates got together and said, this is inhuman. We will boycott your bus system. Now understand what a boycott is. A boycott is a passive act. It is the most passive political act that anyone can commit, a boycott. Because what the boycott was doing was simply saying, we will not ride your buses. No sort of antagonism. He was not even verbally violent. He was peaceful. Dr. King's policy was that nonviolence would achieve the gains for black people in the United States. His major assumption was that if you are nonviolent, if you suffer, your opponent will see your suffering and will be moved to change his heart. That's very good. He only made one fallacious assumption. In order for nonviolence to work, your opponent must have a conscience. The United States has none. So what happened? Well, what happened is James Meredith. On June 6, 1963, James Meredith, Air Force veteran and the first African-American to enroll in the University of Mississippi, was in day one of his one-man voter registration march from Memphis to Jackson, Mississippi. A white man named Aubrey Norvell shot Meredith. Now, Meredith was taken to the hospital, and he did recover, In fact, James Meredith is still alive. He was even able to rejoin the march that other civil rights leaders picked up in his name while he recovered from this attempt on his life. But on the way to visit Meredith at the hospital, Carmichael and other activists who were driving over in the car knew they could not abide by this nonviolent strategy anymore. In his memoir, Carmichael wrote, We were angry and tired tired, tired, tired of folks being brutalized or killed with impunity, tired too of especially of half-baked knee-jerk ideas from our side, 
particularly of these wretched, pointless marches, appealing to whom? Appealing to what? Carmichael helped finish that march, but along the way in Greenwood, Mississippi, he gave a speech. Now King could not be there, which Carmichael and others from SNCC saw as a good thing, because they believed that Dr. King would have tried to neutralize or water down what Carmichael was going to say. In that speech, he took a new tone, a tone that was not just a shift, but a turning of his back on nonviolent civil disobedience. He said, what do we want? Black power. And with that, uttering the words black power, there is a new tone to the civil rights movement, especially after Dr. King is assassinated in 1968. When Carmichael said that, when he said black power, he meant that black people should unite, form their own communities with their own goals. It's a rejection of the idea that black people should have to assimilate into white society because that is based on the belief that white society is better. It is about black people supporting each other and lifting each other up, just as white people had been doing for centuries. Robert Woodson, an author and an advocate for lower-income Americans, gave this explanation for the difference between King's civil rights movement and the movement that followed his death. The difference, I would say, between the civil rights movement of 1954 to 68 and the black power movement was that the civil rights movement sought equality with whites. And it was a middle-class movement. The black power movement assumed equality of person and merely sought the opportunity to express that equality by saying we are a proud people. We don't need you to tell us that. Our kinky hair is glorious. Uh, who Our black skin is something we're proud of. Uh, and we are who we are. Now we merely seek uh, to express that. Look, the soundtrack of the Black Power movement also reflects a changing of the guard. Stokely Carmichael was 13 years old when Rosa Parks refused to give up her seat on that bus in Montgomery in December 1955. That was the era of the Platters and Pat Boone and Bill Haley and the Comets. Times change. And sometimes, if need be, messaging changes too. And there were many in the civil rights movement who believed that the messaging needed to change. Now, is it necessary? Do artists, uh, musicians have a responsibility to be political? Uh, That is a debate that we still have. But there were those within the civil rights movement in this new evolution of the civil rights movement in the late 1960s and into the early 1970s, who believed that black artists, black singers, did have a responsibility. Up until 1968, James Brown was not known to be political. He did help calm the city of Boston after King's uh, assassination. He did do that. But other than performing at a civil rights rally at a historically black college in Mississippi and giving some cash to the Congress for racial equality, he kind of stayed out of it. That's why this was such a surprise. Uh, 
written by James Brown and his band leader, Pee Wee Ellis, in 1968, released in the summer of 1968, and was number one on the Billboard R&B charts for well over a month. Definitely an anthem for black, black power and black pride. There is a legend that may have been started by James himself, that he wrote that song because the Black Panther Party left a hand grenade on his doorstep. Now, True story or not, it doesn't diminish Brown's sincerity or its importance to African Americans. Randall Kennedy, a law professor at Harvard, wrote in 2018 that it felt exhilarating to sing this song and also pointed out that this was the time when the term Negro was rejected in favor of black until 1988 when Jesse Jackson led the movement to replace black with African American. This is what James Brown said about I'm black and I'm proud. I was trying to do two things. One, give the power structure, which in America means the white power structure, a way to understand how we felt and know that we had people who could do things and just wanted a fair shake. Two, I wanted young black kids to wake up and realize that they should be proud of who they were, get an education, and try to make something of themselves. That was James Brown's last pop hit. He had been really popular with white people up until that song. Folks, listen, my very white mother had at least one James Brown album that I can clearly recall. But James started to get some flack from Black Power supporters about his music and his hair, So when he briefly had an afro in the late 60s, that too was a statement. And he lost a lot of white fans because of it. White people heard black power and they interpreted that as anti-white. And they thought that James Brown was making an anti-white statement to them. White people were really afraid of the Black Panthers, by the way. The Black Panther Party was not the entire black power movement, but they knew how to use the media and they were a very visible part of it, even if they were mostly in Oakland, California. The Black Panthers did organize their communities and they did register voters. They opened health centers and they distributed food. They also did say that African-Americans should be exempt from the draft, which was sending young black men to Vietnam in large numbers. They also exercised their second amendment rights and openly carried guns. In fact, they would stand by with those guns and oversee the arrests of other African-Americans. On May 2nd, 1967, several members of the Black Panthers walked into the California State Capitol building wearing their berets and dark sunglasses and leather jackets, openly carrying shotguns as a show of protest about the Mulford Act. They were the reason for the Mulford Act which was passed and did repeal the right to openly carry firearms in the state of California. By the way, both Governor Ronald Reagan and the NRA supported that bill. They also got the attention of FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover. I talked in the last episode of this very podcast 
about how the FBI kept track of John Lennon and kept him in, tied up in immigration court to keep him from an anti-Richard Nixon tour. They really ramped it up with their counterintelligence intelligence program, uh, Quintel Pro, which actively sought to create chaos in the Black Panther Party. They did things like send fake letters to Huey Newton and Elridge Cleaver, the party's two main leaders, uh, to get them mad at each other, to start a war. This is all documented. A Senate committee in 1976 reported that the FBI's behavior contributed to the climate that led to four members of the Black Panther Party being shot and killed, not to mention creating, quote, gang warfare with the Panthers in Chicago and an organization called the United Slaves in Southern California. Yeah, the Panthers were in Chicago, too, which is the hometown of the soul group, the Shylites. Fred Hampton was the leader of the Chicago Black Panthers until he was shot and killed, along with his bodyguard, Mark Clark, in his own bed in the early morning hours of December 4, 1969. While the verb that the National Archives website uses to describe Hampton's death is assassination by the FBI. They did have an informant give them information about Hampton and the layout of his apartment. That informant did slip a sedative into Hampton's drink. Hampton was not mortally wounded when the Chicago Police Department and the FBI stormed into his apartment that morning. But an officer did then shoot Hampton twice in the head at point-blank range. There were 99 shots fired by law enforcement compared to the one shot that Mark Clark got off as he lay dying. So assassination does not sound wrong. A few weeks later, the Shylites went to work on their new album, took that phrase, Power to the People, and dropped it right into their 1971 album, For God's Sake, Give More Power to the People. This band had been around for many years, but none of their songs before this one had the urgency of this.
title track to uh, For God's Sake Give More Power to the People, which was a Billboard Top 40 hit, but made it to number four on the R&B chart. Also on the album, by the way, is the number one Billboard hit, Have You Seen Her? Ricky Vincent, author and funk historian, said that this song was a response to the killing of Fred Hampton, much like uh, If There's a Hell Below, We're All Going to Go by Curtis Mayfield. And it was a popular acknowledgement of the power and influence of the Black Panther Party in Chicago and nationwide. Alice Eccles, who is a scholar in many things, counterculture, and a former disco DJ, credits Smiling Faces by The Undisputed Truth as the first black power song to become a pop hit. That meant that white people bought the record and played it on the radio. It is obviously a song about betrayal, but betrayal of what depends on your perspective. Some African Americans saw Smiling Faces as a commentary on white people, especially on white liberals. Don't let the handshake and the smile fool you. Take my advice. I'm only trying to school you. Sometimes they don't tell the truth. Smiling faces, smiling faces tell lies, and I got proof. coming with that one, can't you? Uh, that's Smiling Faces, written by Norman Whitfield. That made it to number three on the Billboard Hot 100 in 1971. Uh, it's 1971, and Motown is finally starting to get out of that formula that they had that was so popular, in particular with white people. That's a very different, funkier sound for Motown. Uh, you know, Like James Brown, Motown was also criticized by African Americans for not being a little more political, but Barry Gordy was always uh, afraid of that, at least up until the early 1970s. If in fact that is commentary on white liberals, 
It has echoes of Dr. King's letter from Birmingham jail, which I read a little bit of earlier, when he wrote, I must confess that over the past few years, I have been gravely disappointed with the white moderate. I have almost reached the regrettable conclusion that the Negro's great stumbling block in his stride toward freedom is not the white citizen's counselor or the Ku Klux Klaner, but the white moderate who was more devoted to order than to justice. That same message of betrayal is repeated in Backstabbers by the Rock and Roll Hall of Famers, the OJs. it's like an automatic have to turn that up whenever you hear it uh, that's that's one for me backstabbers that is also the philadelphia sound of kenny gamble and leon huff you can just hear it with those strings backstabbers was the first number one r&b single for the oj's who had been playing what was called the chitlin circuit of the south for a long time before that song took off in 1972 they had never done anything like it before and i would argue Nothing like it after. I mean, it's a world away from love train. However you want to interpret backstabbers, whether it is really just about relationship betrayal or maybe something more, which scholars like Alice Eccles believes to be true, it is part of this canon of music that Greil Marcus described like this. These black musicians and singers were cutting loose from the white man's world to attend to their own business. And to do that, they had to tell the truth. They made music of worry and confinement. And then he said this about listening to music on the radio. I don't know if I will be able to convey the impact of punching buttons day after day and night after night being met by records as clear and strong as, as Curtis Mayfield's Superfly in Freddy's Dead, the staple singers Respect Yourself, and the utopian I'll Take You There, the OJ's Backstabbers, 
War's astonishing slipping into darkness, and the world is a ghetto. The temptations, Papa was a rolling stone. Johnny Nash, I can see clearly now. Stevie Wonder's superstition. Only a year before, such songs would have been a curiosity. Now they are all part of a piece of one enormous answer record. Grill Marcus, who is white, makes an important point. If you have listened this far into this episode and you are white, you may have thought something like, I didn't realize the music meant that. I just liked the music. And that could be because you were too young to get it when the music was released, or it could be because you could not see the intention because you are white. Curtis Mayfield said that black musicians were making black music for black people, and if it crossed over, it did. But that was not the point. Yes, that was the goal in the past, especially for Motown, because crossing over to a white audience meant radio play and record sales. But it would be counter to the whole goal of the black power movement to care if white people liked the soul music that was being produced. Understand this too. It was not just the lyrics or the style of the music that mattered. It was the claiming of space, space that had been denied or shaped in a way to fit a narrative that was acceptable to white people. The best example of this that I can think of is Isaac Hayes. Some of you may know him as the voice of Chef on South Park, but long before that, he was the man who redefined what soul music could be. The concept of black power in song did not have to be an obvious political message or commentary. Isaac Hayes recorded four epic songs, and only four songs, for the album Hot Buttered Soul in 1969. Stax Records had split from Atlantic Records and needed a catalog, so they released 27 albums all at once to give them this quick catalog of music. That meant that a lot of people were given the chance to make music. Hayes said he would do it, but he wanted to do it his way. So here's a sample. Now, you know this song, right? This is Dionne Warwick. If you see me walking down the street And I start to cry Each time we meet Walk on by It's very pleasant. Uh, Dionne Warwick, Walk on By, 1963. So, uh, six years later... Isaac Hayes is going to take that song and he's going to do this. If you see me walking down the street and I start to cry each time we meet and walk on by walk on by I break down and cry 
12 minutes of cool. And Hayes said he did not care at all if the album sold. Uh, he did not have to worry about that. It wasn't just about the music with him, though. The album cover, it's just the top of Isaac's bald head. When he was on stage, he wore a suit made out of a, a gold chain. He said it was his natural air conditioning. Uh, the man, he had presence. There is no other way to put it. Well, there is. Willie Hall, who is a drummer who worked with Hayes at Stax Records, said this. Isaac was just cool as shit. So that's another way of looking at it. Emily Lordy, who is a historian of black popular music, wrote about Isaac Hayes and the 50th anniversary of the release of Hot Buttered Soul in 2019. His seizure of musical space literalized in the LP jacket for Black Moses, which unfolded to reveal a full-length portrait of Hayes in a robe, his arms outstretched, made a political statement at a time when Black people were being made to feel acutely unwelcome in the public sphere, patrolled by police in their own neighborhoods, maimed and killed for being in the wrong place at the wrong time. Hayes took up time and space as if it were owed him, and listeners responded. Even though this album was not an overt political statement, it was inspired by the pain of Dr. King's assassination. Hayes considered Dr. King a friend and said that after King's death, he was so angry he couldn't make music. Then he turned that into art and a determination to be a success. He said he thought at that time, well, I can't do a thing about it. So let me become successful and powerful enough where I can have a voice to make a difference. And he did. We see a similar theme of claiming space and pride in being black in the song Mighty Mighty by Earth, Wind, and Fire in 1974. The chorus goes like this. We are people of the mighty, mighty people of the sun. Verdine White, who was one of the founding members of the band, said that some radio stations would not play the song because they believed it was associated with black power. Was it? Let's listen.
Almighty from the album Open Our Eyes in 1974. It got to number 29 on the Billboard Hot 100, number four on the Billboard Hot Soul chart. This is what Lori Janelle Dance, an assistant professor of sociology at the University of Nebraska, said that she felt when she listened to that song in the 70s. It helped to heal my wounds by declaring that black was beautiful. Before the civil rights and black power movements, African Americans suffered relentless spiritual assaults by constantly being cast by the dominant culture as abnormal and inferior. We were too African, too black. Our lips were too big, our hair too kinky. We were told that white was the beauty standard, and we were the antithesis. By the 1970s, black Americans claimed our black skin, thick lips, and kinky hair. When Mighty Mighty was released, both the black power movement and the soul music that reflected it were dying out. From the perspective of the music, Radio programmers thought that if it was getting kind of repetitive and that the people who had been buying it felt like it had worn thin, that it was time to move on. They wondered how many times songs had to be written about the problems in their lives that were not getting better. It is not a coincidence that as this brand of soul is fading out, disco is moving in. Disco was all about forgetting your problems and dancing. Yes, It was more than that to the gay community, of course, but at its heart, it is dance music. Social commentary in music made by and for African Americans was not and is not dead. Hip-hop was brewing in the background. Disco may have ruled the charts and the clubs and the radio between 1975 and 1979, but hip-hop was there. It's going to borrow from funk and soul and disco And it is going to have a say. From the perspective of the black power movement, the FBI killed it. That's well documented. It was considered a threat to our national security and it was wiped out. The issues that were raised by that movement were not wiped out, though. It's going on 50 years later and a new round of soul music could be created that addresses the same problems, poverty, police brutality, inadequate housing and health care, and we would not think of those problems as history because they're not. They are our present, and they will be our future, too, if we do not see real change. That is all for this episode of For the Record, the 70s. Thank you so much for listening. If you like the show, please tell someone and leave a five-star review with your podcast app called Show Notes and Sources are on ftr70.com. You can follow the show on Instagram at 70s Podcast. Thanks, everyone. Bye for now.